This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are a number of arguments one could make for or against President Biden's choice of Supreme Court justice. But given that the president has not chosen a Supreme Court justice, but that he's only chosen a demographic profile of a Supreme Court justice, the range of arguments is pretty restricted. In fact, on this show, hours after Stephen Breyer announced his retirements, I told you what many of the arguments would look like. I could play the tape of that January 26th show, but it'll sound exactly like this, me talking, right? So I'm just going to tell you what I said. I said that Tucker Carlson, or some Tucker-like entity, explicitly saying he's supporting a black woman, we'll call it racist against whites. That has happened. And then I predicted that some, maybe even Biden supporters, I said, quote, won't love the fact that the president, even before reviewing the candidates, ruled out 93% of the American public. Well, yesterday, it was a non-Biden supporter, Ted Cruz, who said this. He's saying to 94% of Americans, I don't give a damn about you. You are ineligible. And he's also... I know how they think. I can tell you what Ted Cruz is going to say before he even says it. And I can also say it with more statistical precision than he does because the actual number is 93, not 94%. He also said this. If he came and said, I'm going to put the best jurist on the court, and, and he looked at a number of people and he ended up nominating a black woman, he... he could credibly say, okay, I'm nominating the person who's most qualified. Which has been repeated by many opposed to the explicit nomination of a black woman. Many people like Trey Gowdy, former congressman. Americans, including a majority of Democrats, believe Biden should consider all nominees. So why not look for the most qualified candidates, period, Mr. President? I can help. I can help with all this. I think we, meaning well-meaning Americans, and perhaps not well-meaning Americans, but I think most of us have a misconception, a misconception of the most qualified. There are, in fact, hundreds of perfectly qualified candidates. The Democrats will have their list of dozens and dozens. The Republicans will have an entirely non-overlapping list. But based on writings, rulings, education, experience, temperament, there are just so many perfectly qualified future Supreme Court justices. Yet we advance this notion that there is the, quote, best qualified. That doesn't really exist. We can't avoid perpetuating the notion because once a nominee is picked, the president wants to say, I picked the best and the candidates love to hear. And even opponents don't argue the premise when they say, no, she's not the best. The ABA has three ratings, not qualified, qualified, and well-qualified, but if they really wanted to, they could break out that highest category further with labels like exquisitely qualified, perfectly suited. The truth is, from what I've read about a couple of the candidates on the actual shortlist, it's quite accurate to say you won't find a more qualified candidate. 
That's the language, by the way, I acknowledge, of over-the-counter medicine ads. You can't buy a more potent pain reliever without a prescription because they're all 500 milligrams and the difference is in shape or coating or maybe if it's Excedrin, a splash of caffeine. But I do think with their robes and their silence and their mystique, the Supreme Court cultivates an allure that they're the holy of the holies. It's not true. Lots and lots of people, incredibly impressive people to be sure, but not unicorns of jurisprudence are out there. They're perfectly qualified. And I got to think that among them will be pulled President Biden's eventual nominee. On the show today, the Academy Award nominations are out, and I examined the most critically reviled films among the top nominees for Best Picture. I'm not going to tell you which one it is until the spiel, and I trust you, don't look up the one I mean. But first, it's Al Franken. Again, he's back. No, not in the Senate. That'd be fine with me. But on the pod waves, his own and mine, in part two of our interview, we talk about a few of his former colleagues and what his big cause is at the moment. Al Franken, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. When we last spoke to Senator Al Franken, we mentioned a few of the nominees for Supreme Court who he questioned. I'm interested in how he questions qualified and unqualified and who among his colleagues do a good job, which senators, on the other hand, are not up to snuff by his estimation. I am at least a decent enough interviewer, decent enough at questioning to get some good answers from him. So I began with John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana, who favors a technique of quiz type questions peppering future judges with questions they should be able to answer once they're on the job. Did Al think this was a useful tactic? Well, yeah, I mean, it, when it's appropriate. I mean, we mm -hmm. uh, Trump had nominated a, a judge for, I think it was a district court, and the guy had no trial experience whatsoever. And as you know, district court is about trial you know, is, yeah. is trying cases. <laughs> and so uh, Kennedy had done a lot of trials, I guess, and just asked him, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? And he didn't know anything. And the guy withdrew like the next day. So that's that probably happened because it was a Republican on a Republican situation. You did a similar thing, different committee with Betsy DeVos, where you really exposed, I guess you could call it a gotcha question, that you didn't know the difference between <laughs> growth and proficiency, which is pretty basic. Yes, well, but I think a gotcha question is okay if the thing that you're getting is something that you need the nominee to know. The proficiency is if they've reached a, a like third grade level for reading, et cetera. It, is no, I'm talking about the debate between proficiency and growth, yes. and what, what your thoughts are on them. Well, I was just asking to clarify then. Well, this is, this is a subject that is, has been debated 
in the education community for years. But it surprises me that you don't know this issue. Uh, well, growth versus proficiency, anyone who pays any attention to education uh, knows what that is about, which is that when NCLB, No Child Left Behind, started, uh, they only measured proficiency. So they gave you these standardized tests, and to third graders, it was if you met third grade level, you, that was, you were successful. And so they judged on what percentage of kids met proficiency. And so it was insane to do this on proficiency, especially the stakes. If you didn't, a certain percentage didn't meet proficiency, you, you had things like you had to get rid of half the teachers. So you had to get rid of the principal. And it was, it was insane. So this was the number one issue in education. And what happens is you have courtesy uh, visits, you know, um, when, uh, when you have a nominee. So she came to my office mm -hmm. and I had talked to a number of my colleagues on, on the committees, on the health committee, health, education, labor, and pension. I talked to a number of them and, uh, they said, boy, she doesn't know anything about. And so I just wanted to. S Was it only Democrats who told you that? Yeah. Yeah. Republicans wouldn't do that. So I wanted to see how little she knew. And, <laughs> and so I, I just asked her a couple of questions and I went, Oh my goodness, she doesn't know anything. And I had this growth versus uh, proficiency in my head. And then I didn't have it. I didn't want to blow it. I didn't want to tip what I was going to ask. Mm -hmm. So I just said, okay, so uh, you're a billionaire. Does that like put a lot of pressure on you as a parent? Cause you know, your kids, their parents are billionaires. How do you get your kid to work hard? And to, that was just a curious thing. And I just didn't want yeah. to talk about education anymore. <laughs> and she couldn't answer that one very well either. Uh, and I, I would say I'll editorialize here to say on the job, she showed neither growth nor proficiency. Yeah. But I want to ask you a couple other colleagues. Lindsey Graham in your book, you said he was, you know, the funniest of the Republicans. Very funny. Um, now, you wrote the book before he shapeshifted. Yes. So this is interesting. <laughs> if you look at, if if one were to recall that infamous tape where Lindsey Graham is saying, mark my words, I would. Hold this tape. Use it against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination, and you could use my words against me, and you'd be absolutely right. If you look at that tape on C-SPAN, as I have, it pans to you kind of smiling as he's saying this. I don't know if the smile is bemused, amused, or just taking him at his word, like, okay, we'll hold the tape. I doubt that it will ever come up. But at that point, did you have any reason to suspect that Lindsey Graham would become, I'm going to say, a fairly dishonest broker? No, I didn't. And the extent to which he became a dishonest broker, too, was very weird. I mean, Lindsay's sense of humor was basically, I'm very cynical. Mm -hmm. I remember once I was about to, uh, we were breaking for Christmas break, right? So he came up to me and said, are you going anywhere to get sun? I said, yeah, actually, we're going to Vieques, we're going to Puerto Rico. And he said, and immediately, without hesitating, he just went like, do two fundraisers. 
Those for <laughs> who are against statehood and those for statehood, they never talk to each other. I mean, that's, good. that's really funny. That's good. But the fact that he had it there like that was yeah. what most of his jokes were, how cynical I am. And it turns out that he was he was kidding on the square, as we say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, just, it, it's sort of really, really, really bad what he did. He became a Trump guy after, you know, being a, kind of a never Trumper for at least during the campaign uh, when he was running. Yeah. I remember, if, uh, here's an example. We're going to the bathroom together. I say to him, uh, you know, if I were a Republican, uh, I'd vote for you. And he, and he just, without hesitation, said, that's my problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a riff on the Adlai Stevenson line, but that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and also, oh. and while peeing. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, I guess I guess he's a multi-threat. So, okay, there, you gave me an interesting insight. So people who try to analyze Lindsey Graham will sometimes say he's a man of no principle and no consistency. And then the next ne- level analysis is he has consistency. He always yearns for the strong father figure. But I think what you're saying is, no, he's consistently cynical. That's it. Yeah. He has, he will just, he, yeah, he will just go with whatever the opportunity is because that's how he views the world or politics. But it brings up this question. How much does comedy, not comedy, comedy within the Senate, how does that really matter? I mean, you like the guy, but so what? What, what did that, how did that improve the body politic? Every once in a while, it, it I mean, I think it's less so now. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, on judiciary, that broke down with Merrick Garland. I really did. I mean, and yeah. it just, that was it. That was unconscionable as far as I was concerned. So ever since since then, it's been com- almost completely party line on every justice, right? Yeah. Um, and just, uh, well, it was all Republican justices. But I, I, I suspect it'll be that way with uh, the black woman uh, nominee, who I hear, like, of course, Cruz is so predictable. And he's like going, this is affirmative action. And. Oh, give me a break, you know. And they forget that Reagan committed to nominating the first woman. Trump said that he would appoint a woman if uh, Ginsburg died. So these guys have, it's just awful. It's just awful. So it, it got, it, it's gotten worse. And also there's some really, there's some new ones there like Hawley. Yeah. That is just unbelievably hard to watch. So. I am going to name drop. I was talking to Michael Bennett a couple years ago. Do you miss having Al Franken in the Senate? I do miss Al, having Al Franken. Because I would watch a lot of committee hearings, yeah, and he sat next he did. to you. We sat right next. It seemed like you liked each we, other. We liked each other. He he was a really smart guy. He took his job very seriously. He loved being in the Senate, and I know it's you know it's a it's really unfortunate, um, but I miss him. Do you blame any members of your party for leading his ouster? I don't. Do you miss being in the Senate? Yeah, of course. Of course I do. And my, Michael was one of them. One of the good ones. No, he demanded that I reti- uh, resign. Oh, I see. And was he one of the ones who went on the record and said, I regret it? No, which is odd because hmm. I've had nine publicly apologize. So what's going on there, do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I saw him at Harry's... Uh, Memorial, Harry Reid's memorial. And we had, you know, I was there for Harry. And so I didn't want to bring anything like that up. But 
no, that was disappointing. I mean, obviously then, but it's also disappointing now because I have had Tammy Duckworth, Angus King, Leahy, Bill Nelson, Tester, Sheldon Lighthouse has said, you know, I deserve due process and was wrong. And so to what degree do you say, you know, it's politics and I understand that. And to what degree do you take it personally? Well, you know, I I take it a little personally, sure. And, um, you know, I am a forgiving person. So when people uh, apologize, I now they're my friend again. So, um, so I have nine new friends (laughs) and, and I just, you know, uh, Michael's, everything Michael said was right, except he didn't also add that I was one of the, yeah. And I think that's why he said, no, I don't blame him because otherwise I have to blame myself. So, right. So one of the, I think, I think according to quotes, but I don't know if he talked to you personally, Joe Manchin seemed fairly indignant that you were, he was, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you talk to Joe Manchin, uh, does he does he give off guy who lives on a houseboat vibes or what's he like? Do you understand his motivations just in terms of how he does his job? Everything. Mostly when I've talked to Joe in the last uh, year or so, it's been about the filibuster Mm -hmm. because Norm Ornstein and I have a modification of the filibuster. Uh, Joe has always said that he won't get rid of the filibuster, but he's open to a modification. And what Norm and I are talking about is basically a talking filibuster. We're talking about changing uh, the numbers. So instead of 60 to end a filibuster, you need 41 to sustain a filibuster. So that means 41 have to show up. Right now, the filibuster, and this is why it's out of control, the filibuster, just one person has to say, I object, and then you have a filibuster. Yeah, that's a filibuster. <laughs> and then and to break it, you need 60. But not. And so none of them show up. I mean, they literally aren't there. They, you know, if it's a Monday, if there's a cloture vote on a Monday, they don't come in till Tuesday. Yeah, it just makes and it more also, onerous to execute the filibuster. Yeah, it makes it very onerous. Creates friction, creates some costs. Yes. But the, the and you know what? There'd be more compromise if because. We don't want them filibustering if we're in the majority because we want to get work done and it kills time. And they don't want to be there forever. <laughs> and, you know, this would mean that they'd have to stick around. You do a quorum call and you have to be there in 10 minutes. And if you say, you know, 41 have to be on the floor, then Chuck Grassley has to sleep in his office or something. I mean, it's... it's yeah, and he goes to bed at six, so... Yeah, he goes to bed. Yes, that's right. Well, he gets up early, too. So, yeah. To so he fair. might take the early shift. There's soybeans to till, I suppose. I just want to ask about Senator Cinema. You know, my progressive friends ascribe her motivations to venality or diffidence, or they try to psychoanalyze her. I think that she's pursuing um, a strategy that she thinks will work for re-election. But the question is, how important is to understand what her motivations are and what she wants in terms of reforming the filibuster? Well, I don't know her. I mean, I've met her once. I was on a Codel with her to Rwanda. You know, I liked her, uh, but I don't like what she's been doing. Yeah. I don't like the fact that she went on the floor like two hours before Biden was coming to the lunch to try to persuade them to uh, vote for the filibuster modification. And then she undercut him. I thought that was just wrong. 
but I don't know her and I don't know her motivation. So Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, has said he's in favor of reform. Is he, has he told you he's in favor of this reform? At times he has said, I'm very open to it. And then he, it wasn't ultimately, because mm-hmm. that was essentially what they were offering uh, the other week on, on this, um, was a talking filibuster. And they were, they were doing it for a one-time only thing. But there's one point at which uh, uh, he spoke on a phone conference to Third Way, and um, someone taped it, and he said exactly what Norm and I were suggesting and said he was open to that. He was the one who <laughs> characterized it to them, but it didn't happen. Is this a policy proposal with an audience of two? No, it's, a, it, it's actually I've been talking to other uh, of my former colleagues about this at some length. And, you know, Angus King has said exactly this thing on Meet the Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I talked to a number of my former colleagues, some who were close to to Joe, to Manchin. And there seemed to be hope. It's it's just hard to pin him down, obviously. But I, I, I think we can do Build Back Better. But the best approach right now, I believe, is putting each element of it on the floor that that Joe has either indicated that he's for or is open to. Because so far, the way this has been covered, as the press always does, and you watch the press very closely, is as horse race and inside baseball. Right. It's always like, is it 3.5 trillion? No, it's now it's 1.5. Is it yeah, 1.75? Who's doing this? Who's doing that, as opposed to, you know, universal pre-kindergarten. Right. Or child care credit. Let's debate child care credit, yay or nay. Yeah. If that's a debate, yeah. it's and hard so to say put nay. them right. on, because Americans want child care subsidies. Basically, it would say that you don't have to pay more than 7% of your income for child care. Now, in Europe, the average European country subsidizes each child in a family $14,000 a year for childcare. Here it's 500 bucks. So on, on prescription drugs, on expanding Medicaid expansion to you know, those states that haven't adopted it, there's lots of stuff in this that people would be for, uh, overwhelmingly for. And so show that to them, debate it, if the Republicans vote against it or not, but then we can put it in a reconciliation package at the end of the day. Al Franken is doing comedy currently. He's on tour. Also, I have to plug the Al Franken podcast. It is civic nerdery plus a lot of comedy and just a really compelling podcast. I've been listening to it for years. Absolutely. And so therefore, I'll say this was an excellent conversation for a change. Thank you, Al. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. The 483rd annual Academy Awards were announced today in a clamoring horde outside the Catherine T. and Thomas K. Dolby Theater assembled to bear witness and urge on one nominee. Okay, uh, almost nothing I said was accurate. 
It wasn't even a crowd of Netflix employees. No, they only gather in public to protest against their company's offerings, not to support them. The movie in question is, however, Best Picture nominee Don't Look Up, a satire by writer and director Adam McKay. According to Netflix internal metrics, Don't Look Up broke audience records, having been viewed for a cumulative 159 hours in its first week of release and 360 million hours in its first month of release. Factor in the running time, it means over 600 people saw Don't Look Up. No. Joking, it is two hours, 25 minutes long, but that is only to allow every possible iteration of the same point to be made by all 12 stars featured on the poster. Lest anyone in the audience misinterpret a single point, repetition was relied upon heavily. I mean, here's a movie where an hour and five minutes in, a crowd scene shows a random citizen looking up to realize the government is lying to him. I'm not gonna lie to you. This reporter is at a loss for words right now. Yep, it's definitely turning around. That was followed at the hour and 45 minute mark in a crowd scene where a random citizen looks up to realize the government is lying to him. Fucking lied to us. It was about the two hour mark where I made my peace with the movie. It's a new kind of satire, and it's exactly the kind that Adam McKay was trying to make, the unambiguous kind. Adam McKay made his mark as an SNL writer and collaborated with Will Ferrell. Ferrell's characters were all somewhat dim-witted doofuses, doofy, with irrational confidence, who the audience is meant to root for, yet think of as less than heroic. Now, to some extent, of course, every Hollywood star plays a version of himself or herself in every movie. Some stars, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Gregory Peck, barely differ from role to role. They always are something. John Wayne is tough. Eastwood stoic, Peck is always decent. Others like Daniel Day-Lewis, Meryl Streep, Denzel Washington, they have greater range. They're not always the same thing, but they have a consistency. They're kind of uh, never not something. Streep can never not be smart. Denzel can never not be competent. Daniel Day-Lewis can never not be somewhat tortured. But Will Ferrell's characters in Semi-Pro, Talladega Nights, and Blades of Glory were all the same character in slightly different circumstances. McKay understands the limitations of character, and he's gone his own direction. And although he and Farrell co-founded Funny or Die and the Gary Sanchez production company, the two dissolved that partnership, and as reported in Vanity Fair, haven't spoken in almost three years. Now, if you just heard from my saying it right now about the severed relationship, you could have a few reactions. You might be totally indifferent. You might say, that's a little sad on a human level. Or you might think, it's quite a shame if you loved Anchorman or Step Brothers or other McKay Farrell jams. But here's how McKay reacted to the reaction. He told Hollywood Reporter, quote, it's kind of crazy to see how much has been reported on this, McKay said of his fraught relationship with his one-time partner. We may don't look up to hopefully get people talking about the climate crisis, literally the biggest threat to life in human history. And to see so much made about two comedy guys not talking about a TV show is a scary sign of our times. Scary? The public focusing on the dissolution of a creative coupling that produced beloved movies. And let's talk about the sign of our times. This is new to care about movies that meant something to us, to care about public figures we've come to think we know. 
And sure, we should be focusing on absolutely everything else exposes a flaw in ourselves. It's literally the biggest threat to human life. So talking about the Uyghurs, that's a moral failing. Talking about an impending war in the Ukraine or, I don't know, a piddling concern like inflation doesn't warrant attention because there's a climate crisis happening. And Adam McKay is making a satiric movie about it. McKay's new production company is called Hyperobject. Hyperobjects is a word coined by an environmental philosopher named Timothy Morton to describe concepts that we can't quite conceptualize, quintessentially like global warming. Perhaps you could see how concepts beyond conceptualization don't fit easily inside traditional storytelling or even just the regular usual ways that humans relate to ideas. I think McKay said to himself, I have a dire, unique, critical challenge. I cannot rely on the ways that satires or just movies before me have been made. Because all of those movies, all of those works of art played a part in where we are now, and they did not save us. They did not work. I can imagine that McKay consciously did not want to create a quote-unquote great satire because satire is vulnerable to misinterpretation. On an episode of Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell interviewed a professor who studies satire, specifically Stephen Colbert's blowhard right-wing character from the Colbert Report. She finds that the more liberal you are, the more you see Stephen Colbert as a liberal skewering conservatives. But the more conservative you are, the more you see Stephen Colbert as a conservative skewering liberals. So essentially, they saw what they wanted to see. So the big takeaway here of this study was that this is what we would call motivated cognition or biased perception. All the great satires from Dr. Strangelove to All in the Family to Colbert allow for biased perception, known artistically as ambiguity. The audience might not get the message if the characters who are being satirized are as compelling or charismatic as the heroes. They always do get the good lines. But Heather Lemaire, the scholar interviewed by Gladwell, points out there's a reason why the buffoon comes off as the beloved. There's no difference in how funny conservatives and liberals find Colbert. And that's part of the magic, right? So that's why I would say he was a comedic genius. The hallmark of a great satirical work has always been that great swaths of the audience don't even realize it's satire. Spinal Tap was introduced on the Joe Franklin show as a real band. Anti-Semites laughed as Borat sang about throwing the Jew down the well. In the 70s, a study of Archie Bunker revealed, quote, subjects, whether bigoted or not, found the show funny, but the most bigoted viewers didn't perceive the program as satirical. They identified with Archie's perspective and saw him as winning arguments. And what's more, satire doesn't, quote unquote, work. It never works. Study after study show that beloved satires don't change minds. That Gladwell episode I played for you was titled The Satire Paradox. That is the paradox that people tend to identify with Archie Bunker or Ali G or the Colbert Rapport's version of Stephen Colbert. And Adam McKay, I believe, knows this. Don't Look Up was meant to be a different type of satire. The stakes were too high, he must have thought. His co-writer is David Serrata, a left-wing activist who, in my experience, is aggressive, often nasty, often inaccurate. 
He publicly targets his enemies. McKay, he's a very funny guy. He's an unbelievably skilled filmmaker, okay? I will absolutely admit that. And he is too funny to give us a two and a half hour film without at least some laughs. And the performers, well, they're some of the greatest film actors of our time. Meryl Streep as a President Palin sort, or Kate Blanchett as a cross between Mika Brzezinski and Kathy Lee Gifford. It's fabulous. But McKay didn't take the usual step of defining his role as that of a usual artist who must, to some degree, accept the audience's interpretation. He could not allow for an interpretation other than what he said in that interview, that the climate crisis is literally the biggest threat to life in human history. Good thing Kubrick didn't have that mindset when making Dr. Strangelove and contemplating nuclear war. The disdain McKay has for the characters he's satirizing And I think by extension, the disdain he has for an audience that might not already be in his corner can't be misinterpreted. He couldn't allow it to be misinterpreted. McKay pretty much bludgeons us with his dismay and makes a film that really only works for an audience that's already 100% on board. Luckily for McKay, the Academy told everyone they are such an audience and that they find it hard to imagine anyone who isn't. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson, its senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the GIST's chief sustainability officer, meaning don't give us plastic forks and knives with the order. We do not want them. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The GIST. Oomperu, Depru, Dupru, and thanks for listening.